For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Thank you for this miracle of being together. At this time and place, bringing forth the Dharma, encouraging each other. Um, in so many ways, to practice deeply and meet each moment with compassion and the great wisdom of Prajnaparmita. So we're here in autumn now in Chicago. I don't know if anybody's in a different place where there's no autumn right now, another season. Uh, we're here. <coughs> We've uh, just slightly passed the equinox last Thursday. So we're in a time of balance, moving towards imbalance, but kind of balance between night and day. And soon the length of evening will surpass the length of daylight. We'll be harvest. A time of harvest and relief in some ways from some of the challenging weather of summer. And it's always a nice time to sit together. Some of us have been sitting this morning for a little half-day retreat, a little extra portion of Sazen. So uh, there won't be a work period today after service, but otherwise everything for the Sunday morning program will continue as usual. So... If it's okay with everyone, I'd like to continue unfolding the teachings of the Diamond Cutter Sutra. Unfold this wondrous teaching. And during the storm talk, we'll have another 10-minute breakout session to talk a little about our impressions and our experience, our practice. Um, so the breakout will occur online with the Zoom cloud folk breaking out together, and then we'll have physical breakout where we move to different parts of the Zendo in pairs. Um, so that's one way we'll unfold the teaching, and I'll do a little introduction so we'll Maybe I'll have something to talk about in response to that. So as you may well know, the Diamond Sutras, uh, I'm not seeing, oh, Mary Lou says she does not see my screen. No. Uh, maybe she can't see me because the camera is not on me. So maybe... I had pinned your video instead of my computer's video. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, David Ray is pinning Hogatsu. <laughs> I like that. The voodoo doll is Dharma. <laughs> um, people can also use the top right corner. There's a view button. You can switch between gallery and speaker view. look like things are cool okay so the diamond sutra sanskrit name is uh, vajrachedata prajnaparmita sutra the sutra whose wisdom cuts through dualistic thinking and delusion it's a tool and it's also a vehicle the swiss army knife it turns into a transformer it turns into a vehicle conveyance device, sometimes called the bodhisattvayana, the bodhisattva vehicle, the vehicle of enlightening beings, uh, <coughs> our version maybe of a Tesla, but this vehicle, this bodhisattvayana has room for everyone and everything and doesn't leave the station, the garage until everyone and everything is on board together. This is the mind we cultivate. This is the mind we're encouraged to embody in Zazen. And in this great teaching of the Bodhisattvayana called the Diamond Sutra, So these emptiness teachings of the Diamond Sutra convey us together with all beings from the shore of stress and separation and division, uh, craving, duality, you know, the general features of suffering. So we get on this conveyance device, this raft of the Diamond Sutra, and we cross over to the shore of peace, and compassion, and freedom, and connection, and caring. I think this is something that most of us can get on board with. Uh, this wish to not be stuck creating more oppression in our world. The sutra begins with a simple and sincere question from Buddha's lovely student, Sabuti. Sabuti asks the Buddha, brings forth the teaching of the question. So you're always bringing forth teachings with your questions. Um, simple question of how does the Bodhisattva live in the world, stand, think, manage this conventional mind, which has some features that create suffering, you could say, at least increase it. So the simple question, you know, uh, please Buddha, teach me this way. I want to realize compassion and wisdom 24 seven, that's sort of Sabuti's wish, I think. 
Buddha answers something like, yeah, that's a really, really wonderful question. Sabuti, you are really sincere. And you really want to realize this supreme wisdom, this prajnaparamita, this complete perfect awakening uh, for the purpose of helping every being in place into the Bodhi vehicle. I mean, it's like a giant arc without any balance or form. And Buddha says some things like, you could say in the Diamond Sutra, Buddha says, well, you know, just don't conceive of any being. Don't conceive of any place. Don't make anyone or anything into a fixed object, including yourself. No problem, right? So this diamond wisdom realizes our life, our life, you know, as expanding this deep truth of wholeness into each relational moment, each present moment, this relational. And Buddha says, here's a little quote. <laughs> so Sabudis, all bodhisattvas should develop a clear, lucid mind that does not depend on any sight, sound, touch, flavor, smell, or any thought that arises in it. So I don't know if you are noticing that now, if you have a smell, a taste, a touch, you know, emotions thoughts arising in your body. But if you're alive, you probably do. But then Buddha goes on and says, don't depend on that. A bodhisattva should develop a mind that functions freely. Free functioning without depending on anything or any place. So this is kind of the ultimate vehicle. So the Diamond Sutra is kind of an instruction on how to create the vehicle, how to weave the vehicle, the Bodhisattva raft that conveys us to this other shore that is none other than our present moment. We create the raft from the roots, I would say, the roots and branches of our delusion. We pay attention to, we illuminate, we become intimate and caring uh, with how we form conceptualizations. And we also study how we're not caught by our conceptualizations. Then, once we have the knack of that, we can employ concepts, our minds, freely to benefit the world. So we actually learn how to harvest, just like we're harvesting pumpkins at this time. We harvest the roots of our conceptualizations and our tendencies to divide the world. And we weave them into this great vehicle, this raft.
we learn this. And when this happens, uh, as Dogen kind of instructs us or writes someplace, the fruit of this is your treasure store will open, your store of diamonds will open, and you can enjoy it freely. You can enjoy them freely. So let's open the treasure chest a little bit of this diamond sutra. And this is chapter five, which I'll read a couple versions of because it's mercifully a pretty short chapter um, of the Vajra Tadaka Vajnya Paramita Sutra. And I'll read these translations after I um, invoke the great mother great mother of wisdom, Prajnik Varmita. Maybe, maybe also this mother is the great Gaya. Om Namo Bhagavachai Arya Prajna Paramitai Homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. So these are the words of Buddha and Subhuti. Chapter five, this is Red Pine's translation. What do you think, Subhuti? Can the Tathagata, aka the Buddha, can the Tathagata be seen by the means of the possessions of attributes? Subhuti replied, no, indeed, Bhagavan, the Buddha, cannot be seen by means of the possession of attributes, and why not? Bhagavan, what the Tathagata says is the possession of attributes is no possession of attributes. So this kind of formula is constantly repeated. Can you hold on to something? No, the thing you see isn't the thing you think you see. And once you give that up, then you can see the things that you see from an open mind and heart. So that's the formula. So this having been said, the Buddha told the Venerable Subhuti, since the possession of attributes is an illusion, Subhuti, and no possession of attributes is no illusion, by means of attributes that are no attributes, the Tathagata indeed can be seen. Here's another version. You know, translation is an amazing thing. It helps us because certain translations at certain times bring forth, bring forth understanding and connect to our prajna. We have a wonderful translator in our body, teacher Tagen, who's helped us, I'm sure all of us, bring forth the great Dogen's teaching. And I would hazard a guess that Dogen also read the Diamond Sutra, chanted the Diamond Sutra, wrote the Diamond Sutra, copied it, embodied it, wrote it on his body. And that's what we're doing too. So here's another translation. Subhuti, what do you think? 
Is it possible to recognize the Tathagata by means of bodily marks? Recognize the Buddha on the altar? How do you do that? By bodily marks. But Tabuti says, no, Buddha. And why? When the Tathagata speaks of the bodily marks, they speak of the no possession of no marks. The Buddha said to Sabuti, all that has form is an illusory existence. When the illusory nature of form is perceived, the Buddha is recognized. One more time. What do you think, Sabuti? This is Thich Nhat Hanh's version, who writes a really accessible and beautiful commentary um, translation of the Diamond Sutra. All of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings in some ways are just his iteration of the Diamond Sutra. So what do you think, Sabuti? Is it possible to grasp the Tathagata by means of bodily signs? No, world honored one. When the Tathagata speaks of bodily signs, there are no signs being talked about. Buddha said to Sabuti, in a place where there is something that can be distinguished by signs, in that place there is deception. If you can see the signless nature of signs, then you can see the Tathagata, the Buddha. So, you know, how do you recognize the Buddha? You're walking into a Buddhist temple like this place, you know, we have an image or a statue. Um, and then you're like, can I see that in other people too? You know, so you're looking at other people, you're looking for that little little male figure on your altar trying to find that in yourself and other people you know um and it's okay to have these images but don't be deceived by them and how do you know if you're deceived by them diamond cutter so you know just just sidebar these bodily marks or attributes uh, classically speaking, early Buddhists thought that someone who was a Buddha had like 32 bodily marks and like 80 beautiful features or something like that. Um, and, you know, things like when they walked on the ground, the Dharma wheels were imprinted because they had the, the little stamps on the soles of their feet, you know, blue eyes. Uh, golden skin, all these things, you know, that probably were considered beautiful and special at that time. Think about how we walk around the world, categorizing people into attractive and not attractive, into, you know, is that really a Buddha? That couldn't possibly be a Buddha. That person's too, like, sloppy or something. Um, so while it's pleasant to think of these images, there's a dark side, you know, uh, of this Buddha stereotyping, or Buddha bias. And this passage is uprooting this. 
So earlier in the sutra, it asked us to give up being biased towards a variety of things, but now it's saying, you know, give up your bias around Buddha. So um, some of you know this, but and some of you have to do this, but I've been, I took some implicit bias training recently as part of my professional development. And um, also I was trained early in my uh, graduate career as a social psychologist and social cognition, how we make interpretations of our social world and make attributions was one of my things. <laughs> and I think Buddhism brought me to social cognition because it, it really unpacks how we make biases and errors in our judgment. And also like, you know, we want to confirm what we know. So we search the world to confirm what we know. This is what I think a Buddha looks like. This is what I think a good person looks like. This is what I think a bad person looks like. I took a implicit, uh, they have these implicit bias tests online. Asians shaking it. You probably saw them. I think there's some, you know, website at Harvard that has these things. So they must be important. Um, Cause what's a good school? Uh, <laughs> there's some attributes to like universities too. Um, so um, I was interested, you know, because they have you answer very, very quickly uh, and categorize things. And then they tell you whether you're, you know, leaning in one direction or another. And early on, it was kind of being like, oh, you're leaning in a direction where you're a little bit biased towards black people. But then one came up and I was kind of shocked. And I was sort of like, oh, I must be like a good person because, you know, I'm not prejudiced, right? <laughs> Didn't believe that, but there was a tiny, tiny bit that I noticed. Then I took one that had weapons, and it showed weapons and black and white people, and there were weapons and then non-weapons, like, you know, an apple or something. You had to categorize them very quickly, and it times it, and then it calculates, you know. And I was... Uh, humbled and almost happy though I was categorized as I although I was not conscious of this at all I categorized weapons more easily attributed to black people than to white people so this kind of subconscious pattern recognition you know let's say we have patterns that we get from all the messages in our world this kind of unconscious pattern recognition takes place without, you know, uh, maybe it was good to recognize patterns and from an evolutionary perspective or a survival perspective. It's kind of helpful sometimes. Like we know when to, uh, what a Zendo is, we think. We think we know. Um, that can be helpful, but a lot of times they're not relevant and they're even harmful. So... You know, maybe this is another chapter in the Diamond Sutra of thinking about our biases and saying, you know, if you think you aren't making judgments, think again. Um, so we all know the great teaching that our thoughts and attitudes manifest in our actions and deeds. 
even the ones that aren't conscious. And while biases and aren't always negative, and they're shaped by kind of a survival instinct, you know, uh, because we perceive people similar to us or things that are familiar, we think they're safe. It's in our neurobiology to look for things that are known and that feels secure and calming. Uh, so uh, this is just the subconscious kind of othering and the subconscious saming <laughs> is part of, of how our biology works. So I'm not advocating shame around it, but the Diamond Sutra says see deeper and loosen up a little bit bodhisattvas and don't always believe everything you think as a matter of fact never believe anything you think but test it out give it a test check it out ask someone engage uh, in the world um, because all the science on interpersonal perception uh, really is kind of amazing in how we make attributions and assumptions about other people. We think we know what other people are thinking. We think we know their motivations. And it's sorely biased and inaccurate. To really know someone, you know, many of you are married or have children or have pets. And over that lifetime, I don't know if you notice this, but people we love surprise us. We thought we knew them. Maybe we didn't. We thought we knew ourselves. And, you know, this is a, a wonderful teaching we have in the Diamond Sutra to say, watch how you pay attention to attributes. Watch how you construct a whole story from those and act on that story. You know, I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh uses things like, you know, this cup seems like it's separate from me but we're all connected by the sky, the water, the molecules, you know, does this cup make me? Is it a cup? You know, all this stuff. It's great to kind of see this in some kind of beautiful way, which it is. But there's also something, you know, humbling and a little scary to me about uh, the way our minds can work. Like, how else could it happen that someone could, for, what, nine minutes, somebody probably knows the exact time, put their foot on the neck of a person who looked different from them when they were screaming for air, unless their mind is deluded, unless they were dissociated from the real experience in that moment. So, so this Diamond Sutra has a very serious aspect um, that, that really invites us to meet each moment with this diamond that sees and illuminates and expresses the facets of reality, not the, the single little facet our mind might grab onto. You know, and I don't know if anybody ever had this, you know, where, um, do you ever have the experience of finding out 
that you were wrong in your initial assessment of someone, uh, that you had an implicit assumption about someone or something, or misread like a pensive look as criticism. My graduate thesis advisor, who was the kindest and maybe one of the most nourishing people in my life, was a very shy person, and she rarely made contact, eye contact with people in the hallway and often looked away. I think Kathy knows her. And people could mistake this for aloofness um, or shyness. I did. I felt hurt. Like, aren't I her favorite graduate student or something? <laughs> uh, but over the many years I spent with her, uh, uh, or you thought you really loved someone, fell in love, idealized them, and found out they weren't the person you thought they were. So, you know, or we might have missed an opportunity to connect, you know, people who are unhoused. Uh, roaming the streets, you know, often they bring up this fear because of their features or attributes, or, you know, somebody on Instagram who looks hot, <laughs> you know, brings up some kind of visceral response. Uh, this is just this seeking, feature matching, unconscious stuff. Um, you know, so is it a demon or is it Buddha? Demon or Buddha. So maybe this is a good time for us to stop and do some breakout. What I'd like you to do with this time is to consider how this diamond teaching from Chapter 5 works in your life. Uh, consider your own experience, maybe, of implicit bias. Or uh, think about this phrase, since the possession of attributes is an illusion and no possession of attributes is no illusion. By means of attributes that are no attributes, the Buddha is seen. So how do you see Buddha? Uh, on that note, Bodhisattvas, I'm going to drop off so that I'm not put in a room. And um, I'll be back in 10. So thank you all very much. So I think everyone's back out of the Zoom rooms? Mm -hmm. Great. Welcome back. Thank you, everyone, for actually talking to each other at a Zen event. <laughs> a novel thing. Uh, kind of a wonderful thing. I know Douglas is going to return to just did something. Um, so I hope you enjoyed your breakout. Um, we'll have a little more time for discussion. I just kind of want to make a couple little comments. Um, so for some people, you know, Zazen can feel like sitting in this kind of emptiness zone that's void or numb or without thoughts or kind of a spiritual, psychedelic, blissful 
white out, you know. Um, but if we sit quietly, upright, still, if we're lucky, we can see how uh, this works. The, in our samadhi, the diamond cutter arises and illuminates and heals these unconscious biases that are in our bodies, um, or at least gives us the chance to uh, take care of them, you know, keep them in their uh, safe spaces so that they don't go wild and wreak havoc. putting the toddler in a playpen. So we can put our unconscious biases in this safe containment area and enjoy them and let them develop. Uh, another image, of course, is we can uproot them and create this raft next us. So in some ways I would say that, um, you know, in our stillness we work deeply, deeply. Uh, paying attention to something, our minds and reactions. You know, I think because zazen is typically objectless meditation, there's an idea we don't pay attention to things. But I think sometimes it's good to, even just for a zazen period, I'll say radically, I'll suggest this, to pay attention to how we conceptualize. Then you can let that go and drop into some other state whatever that is, pay attention to something else, pay attention to how you pay attention, you know, it's endless. Um, but this is, this is true safety, not the kind of safety that, you know, our sympathetic nervous system gets all active around, but the, the true safety is this wholeness that we're all working together. Um, and when there is no fear, if we don't have to like reflexively other everything, you know, there's no problem. We know how to act, actually, if we connect to our mother, Prajna Paramita, the supreme wisdom that's relational and experiential and embodied. And it's, it's intermingled. It's part of the tapestry of these bodhisattva practices of generosity, of ethical conduct, of patience, the energy. There's a brightness that happens when we are free from these unconscious workings and we actually see things as they are. Uh, there's energy there, there's meditation, and there's, of course, wisdom. So this is all woven into our Diamond Sutra. Um, and we meet uh, the world, uh, and we meet duality and divisions within ourselves and outside with these diamond eyes, you know, we see in the sky with diamonds, something like that. It encourages us to see into bias and to see into separation, to see beyond it, and to see beyond non-duality. You know, our culture is doing this with all of its interest in non-binary, but you don't want to get attached to non-binary, you know, we always want to have some category, 
you know, and then we're uncomfortable if somebody's like, well, I don't know, like one day I'm she and next day I'm they and he and we are all together, you know, like, like this is, this is how these things work. So, um, once we know our tendencies and are open to them and relaxed with them, we can make a difference in the world, you know, we can choose how we want to relate. We can choose to question our biases. We can choose to practice the precepts. We can choose to even have some humility about our human limitations. Um, and then we can really know Buddha. <laughs> we can really know peace. Then uh, Nirvana, you know, arises within samsara. Then demons are demons and Buddhas are Buddhas. And all are enjoying the ride together on the diamond vehicle. So uh, thank you all very much for illuminating this together and sharing our minds and hearts. And uh, so it's time, maybe we have some time to share. Yes. Uh, would you mind turning your camera back on? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you. I wasn't seeing you. I thought you were looking at me and I'm like, what's this weight attentive? No, he's trying to get my attention. Thank oh. you. <laughs> Thank you. So, um, I'm sorry, my camera was off. Now you see a different feature. <laughs> Is it Hogetsu? Mm -hmm. um, so, so let's eliminate the sutra a little more together in, in our group um, and make it alive in our discussion. So Bodhisattvas, please bring forth your diamond experiences, reflections, reactions, and then we'll uh, end with vows and announcements and no work period today. So Well, I, I just like to say uh, what a pleasure it is to be with you all. And my cat is also here, whose name is Diamond. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't have anything really else to say. She might, but I don't. Oh, thank you for sharing that diamond with us. Who is that? That was Mary, Mary Lou. Online. Mary Lou online. <laughs> Like Tiger might have something to say too. No. No. Nope. You know, this is slightly personal, but um, when I was in sixth grade, my group of friends turned against me, and all the kids in my neighborhood decided that you know they hated me and I was awful, and it was it was really awful um, for a long time. But, uh, and, I, and I struggled with um, the things that people would say about me behind my back that I would hear later. And I, I struggled with this for a long time. And then one day I kind of realized, you know, just because they say these things, it doesn't mean they're true. And, um, and that was a big revelation for me. And I think about... Um, it, it makes me think of Wayneum hearing this, hearing someone chant this sutra, and wondering if if Wayneum had maybe a similar experience, and that was part of Wayneum's awakening was that you know a poor woodcutter from the south couldn't possibly be a Buddha, and um, and and 
you know, the way, way numb travel, we, we yeah. know the whole story. And, um, but, but at the same time, so I, I think that that's important. And I also think that although we may be Buddha, we still have to practice with our unskillful things so that we can more in, you know, inherently embody those qualities. Um, but it's good to, so it's good to maybe look at people as Buddha who's acting unskillfully, right? You know, just because they're acting unskillfully doesn't mean they're not Buddha. We're, we're all on that path to try to work through, you know, what is it that we're, what is it, how, how is it that we're embodying Buddha? Yeah, and the sutra even invites us to give up Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. And to actually just see everyone of kindness and you know the experience of being shunned or hurt or this is really bullying by your friends is devastating but internally the way these biases work is they're sort of the root of that we want to other someone so we can feel better about ourselves and when we see someone's vulnerability and that scares us and we hurt them and you know thank you for sharing that very tender and Sad experience and maybe not perpetuate such things. You know, there's also like, you know, it works in this other way too. We idealize people and attribute ideas to them. And then, you know, like rock stars or public figures. And then you're like, oh, you know, that person actually doesn't seem like they're a good person. And I thought that they were like, believed everything I did, which of course must make you a good person. You know, so we have these these ways uh, and this is also true with physical objects but what your comment and your comment made me think of is that there's also the piece of realizing that those children who were bullying you when you were in sixth grade may have seen you know they might look back now some of them with horror at what they did there might have been a self-realization uh, or not who knows but but my guess is there was for some of them anyway realizing that we're all on a continuum in terms of a developmental process around realization and then you see it more fluid so that you you know i was able to do that all the time maybe i wouldn't tend to peg people in the way I know I do sometimes. Yeah, there's a famous bodhisattva from the Lotus Sutra called Never Disparaging or Never Despising. And it's like, you know, no matter how much this bodhisattva was bullied or ridiculed, they were like, I'm not giving up. 
I'm still <laughs> going to love everyone. <laughs> you know, And that, that's a nice, but you know, like sometimes you have to say, um, please don't do that to me, you know, knowing and, or, you know, I need some space or, you know, you're actually making something up about me <laughs> and, or this hurts or I'm wrong. So, so there are many ways that we practice non-despising. But we have these beautiful teachings that at first seem super philosophical and might just focus that they feel real for us in our lives. Anything else? Hagen? Yeah, I'll just add something. I, um, thank you, Hogetsu, for um, this, this very important teaching about uh, signlessness or not believing everything we think. But another side of that, just to add to what all you said, is that all those uh, things we think <laughs> are real um, and, and are really just illusions. In some ways, they're treasures. So to actually be in, to actually acknowledge the delusions we have, to to not try and get rid of, you know, all these delusions. But okay, that's. I mean, sometimes we do drop some delusions away. That's that that can happen. But uh, just to, uh, you know, confess and repent even to ourselves. Uh, oh yeah, I, I I do think that <laughs> you know I do prefer this uh, over that you know just to notice that to to be aware of that and to be fully present there is uh, in some ways how we awake. So I just wanted to add that and thank you very much for your talk. Thank you. Uh, greetings. <laughs> Thanks, Agetso, for your wonderful talk. And um, just as an aside, I love the screen that looks at people in the Zendu, including to in a screen that looks separately as, as to the speaker. Those two screens at once make a huge difference in terms of oh. awareness of the space. So I don't know if that's a new development or or I just didn't notice it before or something. But um you know, a bit to what Tigan had just mentioned, this notion of innocence in relationship to delusion is important, is an important factor in all this. Because for me, insofar as our participation in these signs and um, our efforts to maybe notice them, uh, detached from their, their uh, operation, is an act of innocence and our innocence in participation is just a, a, a primary realm of, of actual participation in our own world and our lives. And so I, I just wanted to table the idea of, of um, agency, innocence, truth and deception as, as, as equations themselves a little bit here. Uh, that are supportive of all these ideas that you've been discussing. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. Yeah, open your hands and walk innocent. I think that comes from uh, Grass Hut, Song of the Grass Hut. Does that sound right? Huygens translation. So innocent is the 
maybe part of Prajna Paramita, a kind of innocence that's that is beautiful, you know, sincere, like sincere, the word is without wax, I think is a etymological mm-hmm. root. Maybe. Let me see David right here. So but one of you may know that. But you know, without a covering, without protection, but this walking innocently is being open to everything. And open to our pain too. You know, part of the loss of innocence is when we have to be like, oh, things aren't the way I thought they were. But true innocence is open to everything. So thank you, Ed. That's beautiful. Uh, another an additional chapter, additional short teaching of the Diamond Sutra that we're all still writing. I will confess, I have been surprised at how, you know, having coursed in the Prajnaparamita teachings and the Lotus Sutra for so many years of my life, I still find it fresh and inspiring. I don't even more so now. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but they're simple teachings. They're not terribly philosophical, actually, but, but nonetheless, I find joy and inspiration and energy and pliancy and openness in these teachings. Um, and thank you for practicing together, helping me with this. Thank you all very much. <laughs>